This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, how can a death 2,000 years ago help me live today? And to help us, we have Gillian Asquith join us. Gillian lectures in New Testament and Greek at several Melbourne theological colleges. Her areas of interest include the transmission of the text of the New Testament and biblical archaeology. Please welcome Gillian Asquith. Gillian, welcome to Bigger Questions. It's great that you can join us here. Now, you're a lecturer in the Bible. Surely there isn't anything more boring. Far from it. <laughs> Far from it. Yeah. There is stuff in the Bible that would rival a Hollywood movie script. Oh, really? There's political intrigue, assassinations, sex, lust, betrayal. But more than it uh, being a ripping good yarn, it's actually the story of God's intervention into human history. And so I just love to teach people how to read and interpret it. Okay, so what interests you then about lecturing in the Bible? The fact that it has so much relevance for today. It's really? not just an ancient text. Um, it's not just beautiful literature. It speaks directly into people's lives today. Now, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're talking with Gillian Asquith about Easter and how a death 2,000 years ago can help me live today. So, Gillian, our smaller questions to you today are how well you know what others know about Easter. Okay, so there's two questions, multiple choice. Are you ready? You're up I am, for, I up, am indeed. You're up I far am, enough, you've been yes. studying hard. Googling hard. Googling hard, okay, that's, that's the equivalent of study, is it? Is that what you find with people? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> Okay, okay, the first question. Uh, in a recent survey in the UK, which of the f these was not answers given to the question of which disciple betrayed Jesus to death in that first Easter? Now, the correct answer was, of course... Uh, is it Judas? Yes, it was, Judas, that's right. Oh, I'm good. glad, but that's actually not the answer to this quiz. <laughs> Now, three of the following names were given as answers to the question of which disciple betrayed Jesus. Now, which was not one of them which was given? Was it A, Julius Caesar, B, Judas Priest, C, Moses, or D, Judas Escargot? So one oh, of those dear. was not given. Three of them were actually given. Right. And so the correct answer was, of course, Judas Iscariot. But which, so which of these do you think was not given? Oh, surely Moses. Uh, Moses was actually given. So Goodness maybe we'll just let you try again. So one, right, of those was, right. one of those was not given. Okay. Julius Caesar, Judas Priest, or Judas Escargot? Uh, let's go for Julius Caesar. Correct. The answer is Julius Caesar. A. So give Julian a round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> so now only around half those quiz, 55%, were able to correctly name Judas Iscariot, or at least Judas, as the betrayer of Jesus. And one woman from Huddersfield did actually suggest Judas Priest, a heavy metal band. Uh, it does seem a little bit funny because people often put signs up at football games, uh, Judas, of people who are traitorous players who sign for opposing football teams. So it would seem that a lot of people wouldn't quite know what they're actually talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Question two, second question in our quiz. In a recent survey of six to ten-year-olds, what percentage of children thought that the purpose of Easter was to celebrate the birthday of the Easter Bunny? Was it A, 0%, they all understood its religious significance? Was it B, 10%? One in 10 thought Easter was mainly about the Easter Bunny. Was it C, 30%? Almost a third of children thought it was the Easter Bunny's birthday. Or was it D, 97%? Nearly all believed it was the Easter Bunny's birthday. Well, if I'm going to be wrong, I'd like to be supremely confidently <laughs> wrong. Right, okay. So, with confidence, I'm going to say 97%. 
do you want to try another one? <laughs> just, 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 just because we, yeah. That I, I really appreciate your enthusiasm about trying to be wrong, but it wasn't actually ninety-seven percent. All right, let's, let's go for the one a bit less than that. Was a, there was a thirty percent? And it's yeah. correct. Yes, it is. How That's about right. Thirty percent. Congratulations. <laughs> a survey among a thousand six to ten-year-olds found that fifty-three percent were unaware of the religious significance of Easter, and thirty percent thought it was to celebrate the birthday of the Easter Bunny. So, Gillian, and how well you know what others know about Easter quiz, you nearly got two right. So, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, a big round of applause for Gillian. <laughs> now, Easter is a public holiday in Australia and the UK, but people don't know much about its origins. But why do you think there is such a lack of knowledge about Easter today? I think uh, we're, we're living in a post-Christian society. Uh, two or three generations ago, it was common, respectable for people to go to church, but that's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I think too we, we live in a wonderfully diverse multicultural society and so an increasing proportion of our population comes from uh, nations that have no Christian heritage as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not part of uh, the common parlance I think in everyday Australia. Yeah, yeah. Is this lack of knowledge about Easter common in your classes that you teach? Do you find that that happens? I, I teach at theological colleges, but I also teach at a mainstream university, and I do find that there. Just this last week, we were talking about burial practices in the first century in uh, Palestine, and I didn't expect them to be able to generalise, but I thought a way into the topic might be, well, how was Jesus buried? And there are a lot of blank looks at right. that point. So people need to just know a little bit more about the basis of the Easter story. That's, that's right. And that's what we're trying to do today, explain Easter. Uh, but it does seem understandable, though that, as you said, we live in a post-Christian culture, people coming from lots of backgrounds, it's just not taught very much in our schools or just in society in general. So it's pretty understandable people are unaware of the Easter story. Exactly. And um, Easter is really, a, it's a, a very long weekend while the weather's still good. It's a mm -hmm. chance for Australians to get out and enjoy the great outdoors. Um, the shops would have you think that it's all about the Easter bunny or the Easter bilby. Um, hot cross buns, there's really nothing that would help people connect Easter with the story of Jesus. Mm. So given this lack of knowledge in the world, uh, today we're going to explain a bit about Easter. I heard a story of a woman recently who didn't know the difference between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Could you help her out? What, what, explain Easter to us. Well, on Good Friday, um, it's the day when we remember a certain Friday in about AD 30 when an innocent man was convicted of crimes that he didn't commit and he was brutally crucified for those non-crimes. Um, it was a terribly sad day. Um, well, hang on, it's called Good Friday. It is called a, Good but Friday. But it's a terribly sad day. What's, what's, what's that about? Well, because it wasn't just the tragedy of somebody being um, unjustly convicted and, and killed. It was a day that had enormous significance for humanity. Because on that day, and I need to go back into, into kind of Old Testament traditions, Old Testament sacrifices to, to explain that in order for a person to be accepted by God, sacrifices had to be made because God is completely perfect. He cannot tolerate any imperfections in his presence. We as humans are imperfect beings. Mm -hmm. And so in the ancient Israelite society, sacrifices were initiated so that the... I'm going to use the word sin. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, but sin means everything about humans that is, that is wrong. Yucky. 
That's right. That's stuff a good that, word. Stuff that you don't like about <laughs> yourself or other people. And so God says, you actually deserve to be punished for all that nastiness that's inside you. But instead of you actually being punished, God was happy to take the sacrifice of a perfect animal instead. That perfect animal would be killed, the people would be forgiven, but unfortunately, they had to keep on sacrificing animals because the nastiness inside them didn't actually go away. Mm. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was God's son. And God said, if Jesus dies on the cross, I'm happy to take that as a sacrifice for all humanity forever. No more sacrifices ever need to be made. And what's more, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death, will actually take away the nastiness that's inside each of us. And that's the Easter story. That's the Easter story. Yeah. So what's good about Good Friday then? Because that's what it achieves for right. people who believe and follow Jesus. Yeah. So we don't have to go to the meat market so much to, to feel better about ourselves. Thankfully not. <laughs> right, okay. Now you enjoy, as you said, studying archaeology and the history of the biblical text. Are there, do we have any good historical reasons perhaps to trust the Easter story? I mean, it sounds like an interesting story, but... Are there good reasons to think it really happened in history? There are. For years or for centuries, people questioned the historicity of the Easter story because no mention uh, had ever been made in texts that are still existent about the key players, say, for example, Pontius Pilate, the Roman in charge of Judea at that point. But just in the last few decades, a, an inscription has been found um, in a coastal town in Israel that mentions Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. So we've got direct archaeological evidence but for me, I think there's more than that, because the Bible portrays Jesus' followers. He had 12 um, special followers called disciples. The Bible portrays them as spineless nitwits, really. <laughs> they didn't understand uh, when Jesus was trying to explain to them who he was and the significance of his impending death, because Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. They fled when he was um, when he was actually crucified um, they they left him in his hour of uh, t terrible hour of need now if you're going to make up a story and you want people to join your organization are you going to portray your key leaders as spineless nitwits i would say not it's not the most compelling way of wanting to attract people into your new movement mm. so the fact that the Bible stories portray these men with such honesty, to me says they have to be historically correct. And then the fact that something happened to these disciples who were spineless cowards, they'd left Jesus, but within a short while, they were out proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They were um, experiencing thousands of people being converted. They have changed the world. Mm. Something must have happened for those disciples to have such a change of mind. Mm. And that is the resurrection. Mm. They witnessed Jesus not staying dead. And that changed their lives and it's changed the course of world history. Wow, yeah. Well, but, but so what? I mean, it sounds like a nice sort of abstract sort of story. It's, I mean, it's not even nice. It means a bit gruesome at some points. But... but the death 2,000 years ago, maybe this resurrection, just seems somewhat disconnected to our modern lives here in Melbourne. I mean, the world was so much different back then. So what's the point of Easter? That's a good question. And I think at this point, I'd like to relate it to my story, yep. if that's okay. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about your story? Yeah. yeah. So, so I mentioned earlier that 
Jesus' death on the cross brought about God's forgiveness for us. And it actually, it takes away the nastiness that's inside us and enables us to live as better human beings. We're empowered to be more patient, more kind, more loving. That's what happens when people become followers of Jesus. Um, and I had an incident in my life where the forgiveness that I have experienced from God and the change that he made in me enabled me to be able to deal with what was a really uh, very, very difficult situation. Um, I was tell us what happened yet, Sure, sorry. yeah. So I was married with two small children. I had a daughter who was two and my son was five months old. And my husband came home from work one evening and said to me, Gillian, the truth is always the best way. I thought, that's a very weird statement. What's he talking about? And he went on to tell me that he'd been involved in a series of extramarital affairs, uh, four to be precise, and he was still involved with the latest woman. But he was finding it stressful to be lying all the time about his whereabouts, accounting for what he was doing at various times of the day. Um, so he felt the best thing to do was to tell the truth, to, to tell me about these affairs so that he could continue in them uh, without having to lie and feel guilty. Um, it's, to me, it's, it's unbelievable, really. Um, I remember the, the morning afterwards uh, sobbing so much over the breakfast table that I put him off his cornflakes. He couldn't go to work with any breakfast. Um, and then when he came home from work, I think I'd sobbed all day. I hadn't got dressed. I'd managed to feed the kids. I think that was about all I'd managed to do. He came home from work, and uh, after about an hour of me still sobbing in the bedroom, he came in and he said, are we having tea tonight? Um, and I think he's... He was just so involved in this web of, of lies and, and deceit that he'd, he'd lost touch with, with the reality of what, what makes a marriage work, mm. I guess. Um, so we separated. Uh, we ultimately divorced. And I was, he went back to the UK for a job. Um, so just go back. So how did you feel? I mean, that's a terrible story. Thank, I mean, thank you for sharing that. But how, how did you feel at that moment when he shared at, that? At that point, my entire world had fallen apart. Um, you know, I was a mum at home with two small children. Um, my, I, I didn't work. My identity was, was, to a large extent, wrapped up with the fact that I was a mum and a wife. And now suddenly the man who is supposed to adore me um, tells me that I'm worth nothing, um, worth absolutely nothing to him at all. So I was, I experienced complete devastation. Mm. People have said to me, it must have been like losing an arm, you know, having a limb chopped off. I said, no, it was like losing my head. It was like, like my whole head had been chopped off. Mm. It was, I, I just felt as if so much had been ripped out of the mm. insides of me. I mean, an intense betrayal, I suppose. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And so then... You separated, and then what happened? We separated, that? we divorced. My husband went back to the UK. Um, he hoped that I would follow him at a later point, but um, my support network was here in Australia, and my mum had already died. So I decided to stay here. Um, so I had these two very tiny children who were growing up with no memory whatsoever of their father living at home. Um, he came out to visit every so often, and I realised it was up to me to... Uh, bring my children up with a knowledge of their father that wasn't going to be tainted by the fact that I felt such extreme betrayal. So I had to show him the same kind of forgiveness that God had shown me. Mm. So what has it meant then for you to forgive your former husband? 
I heard a phrase once, and I think, I think it describes it very well, that I had to release him from the courtroom of my mind so that I was no longer in my mind wanting to make him pay for what he'd done, no longer by my actions wanting to punish him for what he was, he'd done, but I was releasing him um, from everything that he had caused me to feel. Mm. But even though you've forgiven your former husband, that you haven't reconciled with him, though? No, that's right. We're not even Facebook friends. <laughs> um, because... Well, it's interesting. I went, I went to see a counsellor shortly after we separated. And he said to me, what do you want to happen? I said, I just want to be able to forgive him and have him back. And the counsellor said, Gillian, those are two very separate things. Yes, you have to forgive him. You have to release him from that courtroom of your mind. But you can't have him back. You cannot have reconciliation until he comes back to you on his knees, begging for forgiveness repenting of what he's done. Mm, repenting like saying sorry. Saying sorry, realising the, the enormity of what his actions have caused. So how is that similar or different to the way that we're reconciled with God or forgiveness works with God? With God, God has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled with him. So by Jesus' death on the cross, he has opened up the way for us to experience reconciliation with God. But we have to repent. We don't just kind of experience um, reconciliation with God kind of by osmosis. We actually have to take a stand and say, I recognize that there's stuff inside me that is wrong. I recognize that I haven't been living my life in a way that is honoring to God and that is putting God first. I'm not even in, a, I'm completely alienated from God. I'm not in a relationship with him. And we need to say sorry for that. Come on our knees to God, just as my husband um, needed to come on his knees to me and, and ask for forgiveness in order for us to be reconciled. And so that's how your story in many ways relates to the Easter story and the forgiveness that comes through that. That's right. Yes. Now a question has come through which relates a little bit to this. Uh, why didn't you care if your kids thought badly of him? That seems crazy that you want them to think okay of him. That's a really good question. And I think there are two ways to answer that. The first is that my hope and my prayer was that at some point in the future, my husband himself would would come to God and that he would experience God's forgiveness and that he would be a changed person. And I didn't want my children um, to have a, a tainted view of him when, when he could actually change and become a very different person. But more than that, I think the relationship between a child and their father um, needs to, to, to develop just on those terms, without the stuff that might have gone on between the mother and the father getting in the way of that. So I felt it was exceedingly important to, to allow them the opportunity to have a positive relationship with him, despite what had gone on. Mm. We're asking Gillian Asquith today's big question, how can a death 2,000 years ago help me live today? And perhaps surprisingly to many, the Bible gives some answers. But before we do that, we're interested to hear about why you believe the scriptures are worth following, Julie. Maybe you've talked about the forgiveness that you'd hope your husband would get. What convinced you to become a Christian believer? In a nutshell, and then I'll unpack the nutshell. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell... I don't like shells. I like the inside. <laughs> I like the nut rather than the shell. The shell's not so great. Yeah. So I think that Christianity is the only solution 
for the human condition. And by the human condition, I mean that nastiness that's inside all of us. Um, I was in my final year at high school, and I was dating a guy who had just become a Christian. Um, and he had this wonderful group of friends that he liked to socialize with on a Friday and Saturday night, and he invited me along to become part of that group. I found that very frustrating. I wanted cozy, romantic, one-on-one -on -one time <laughs> with him, and he wanted to be in a big group. These were annoying Christians who you were with, was it? That's right, very <laughs> annoying Christians. But the more time I spent with this group of people, the more I realized how different they were to me, and I could, I could understand why this guy wanted to spend time with them at, rather than time with me. So what was different about them? As a teenage girl, when I was with my own group of friends, we got our greatest pleasure from uh, pulling apart the friends that weren't with us, right. bitching about them, really. Um, and, and that was entertaining, it was pleasurable, and it could take up a very long time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but when I, um, when I encountered this group of friends, they were completely different. They, they didn't talk about each other behind their backs. They, they cared for each other. They... They just seemed like really lovely people. And I, I wanted to be like them. But no matter how hard I tried, and I could put a pretense on on the outside, you know, I can be on my best behavior for a little while, but, but I knew that that wasn't what I was really like on the inside. I could present as nice, but know that on the inside I was still envious, manipulative, bitter, hard. And I couldn't change that. And I thought back to Sunday school lessons that I went to when I was really young. And I remember the Sunday school teacher talking about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That when you follow Jesus, his Holy Spirit actually comes into a person and changes them from the inside. And I thought, that's what I'm seeing in these people. They have been changed from the inside, and I'm seeing the reflection of that. And I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be changed from the inside. Mm. And so you did? And has it, has it changed? Has it worked? I did. Well, that's for other people, I guess, to say. <laughs> we'll just give it, we'll just call a few of your friends now just to see, does she, does she talk about other people? Yeah. <laughs> um, so my friends noticed a change in me back then. Right. Um, the Bible talks about when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, then they are empowered to be more loving, joyful, patient, kind. And so I, I, I do hope that I can display more of those qualities than I would if I hadn't become a Christian. But I think the fact that I managed to forgive my husband through those terrible early years hmm. it's really hard bringing up two small children on your own it's really hard when your former husband then cuts off child support and you have to go out to work um, when you'd prefer to be a mum at home there was a whole lot of stuff that I had to work through and I see that as the the empowering of the Holy Spirit enabling me to do that hmm. Now, the part of the Bible we're reflecting on today comes from a book called Galatians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And this letter forms part of what we call the New Testament. Now, the section we're looking at describes something of how the Apostle Paul understood his relationship to Easter. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It seems though somehow I'm connected to Jesus' death back on that Good Friday. That's a really good way of expressing it, actually. A believer in Jesus actually does become connected to Jesus and connected to what he did. Um, Paul, elsewhere in the New Testament, talks about a believer being in Christ. 
And so everything that was achieved on the cross through Christ's death is then appropriated to the believer through faith in Christ. Mm. And faith is like trusting or yeah, by faith. Yeah, so I mean trusting in Jesus, believing that he is the way to God. Yep. What do you think it means when he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me? Does it mean that Paul thinks he has worms or something? or has some sort of parasite in him living inside him? What do you make of that? Well, thankfully, no. There's okay. no parasite <laughs> and no worms. Right. That's Paul's reference to that indwelling of the Holy Spirit that I've already talked about, that when a believer puts his or her trust in Jesus, then a change happens on the inside. The Holy Spirit comes, and it's a mystery quite how it happens, but, but the Holy Spirit comes and changes people. Mm. And we see evidence of that in people's lives. That's what I saw in my friends. And it's what's happened in your life as, That's exactly right. as well. Right? Now the verse goes on and says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he also speaks about the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for him. What is the love of the Son of God? The whole of the Easter story is motivated by love. Um, the Bible tells us that God created the world and he loved his creation. And God needed to fix the alienation between himself and humanity who he's created because he longs to have a relationship with the people who he's created. So it's entirely motivated by love. Uh, Paul describes living a new life in Christ. So can we have the same experience today? We can. That new life is available for anyone today who puts their trust in Jesus, who says, I no longer want to be satisfied with a life that's characterized by the nastiness that's inside of me. I want to put that on one side. I want to turn away from it completely. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to appropriate for myself what he has done on the cross. I want to say to God, I'm sorry for not following him and I want to put my trust in Jesus. So for someone here who may not know much about the Easter story, what would you recommend that they do? I'd recommend, um, first of all, reading some of the gospel stories. There are four to choose from, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. The stories are readily available on the internet, uh, free. You can easily find some of those stories. It's dead easy to find the, the bit about Jesus dying on the cross because it's right at the very end of each of those biblical books. But you kind of know the ending though, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today we're thinking about uh, explaining Easter. How can a death 2,000 years ago help me live today? So to sum up, a death 2,000 years ago takes away the yuckiness, the nastiness inside me. It enables me to be able to show others the forgiveness that I've received from God. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, how can a death 2,000 years ago help me live today? From Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Gillian Asquith. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.